Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Know the Rules of the Game podcast. I'm Desiree Potno, your host. I am the CEO and president of Women in Housing Real Estate Ecosystem. And today, I am super, super excited because we're going to bring to you someone that when I met her five, six years ago at a conference for women impacting public policy, I was blown away because the fact is, is that over these years that I have seen a whole new side of this lady, and I am so honored to have her be not only a personal friend, but also my business partner. And welcome, Erica Courtney. Thank you. Yeah, right. Welcome. Oh, my gosh. This is nerve-wracking because I'm interviewing you. But anyway, um, she is one incredible lady that if you only knew to the depth of every time I talked to her, everything that she brings to the table from the female veterans is just unbelievable. And so that is, again, the show today, Know the Rules of the Game for Female Veterans, is what this podcast is really going to take a deep dive into. Um, because it's something I learned from her, very important, you've got to speak the military talk. You've got to understand where it's coming from and what it's like. And so a little bit of background on myself. Um, I am the founder, as I said, of Women Housing Real Estate Ecosystem. In addition to that, I am a advisor investor for Amicus Brain, AI for Asian Population, and also I'm the Chief Strategic Officer for Zulu Time, which hence we have Erica Courtney, the founder of Zulu Time, for the Holistic Transitional Center for Veterans. And then also I am a national speaker and connector for the network and wealth of knowledge across a vast economic footprint. And so in this space, I've been working very diligently to make sure that we have a voice and hence we trademark Know the Rules of Game last year to really command the voice of the those who don't have a voice, but also we can understand the rules of how to only known we could play a better economic footprint. So welcome again, um, Erica, and we're gonna talk a little bit about yourself. Um, you are the president of Zulu Time, founder of 2020 Vet, and you're a U.S. Army veteran uh, aviation, and you're a major um, and a NATO gender advisor. But also, I'd like to add in, she is the very first female helicopter combat pilot. Yes. Sorry. No, I'm going to correct you there. I am not. <laughs> I you're am not? Part of the first group. No, I am part of the first group of women to fly the Calvary mission. So we were essentially blazing trails in the last of all airframes in any service to allow women. All right, so how many were in your, in your group? There was five of us. Okay, so I stand corrected everyone on the call. One of five, one of the first five. Okay, practicalities. All right, thank you. Uh, so she is, if you haven't noticed already, detailed, micro detailed, I love her for that. As a U.S. Army veteran, having served in various positions to include military police, scout, helicopter, pilot, and paratrooper, as a trailblazer, she was part of the first group of women to go cavalry, hence, and the first to graduate from the Advanced Armor Cavalry course. What is that? So that is a course that prepares you to take command of a cavalry unit. It goes in depth with cavalry tactics from different functions such as armor, artillery, um, aviation and sort of ties them all together and at the time this was an armor school and it was not open to women uh, but I kept hitting up my leadership uh, every six months that you know I really wanted to become more professionally developed and if I was going to take command you know I really wanted this course um, so persistence paid off and I had the chance to go through and take the course and came out you know more more knowledgeable and and a better leader so I was um, excited to, to have the chance to, you know, basically have the same opportunities that my milk counterparts had. So if I were to ask an honest question, how many times do you have to ask? And how long does that take to ask? Like five times? Uh, yeah, probably about six times. So, you know, just persistence, do your job well. And uh, sometimes, you know, you get rewarded for that. And my um, brigade commander said, okay, you know, I'm going to make some phone calls. And got me in and this was around 2001 and remember the law to allow women in combat arms did not officially change till 2013 so um it was you know kind of a kind of a big deal kind of 12 years yes okay here go. all right we haven't gone through one line her staff work includes flight operations senior logistical contracting and budget management positions in charge of 750 million in equipment $200 million in budgets, 
and 2,500 people in the most deployable units in peacetime and in war. Upon leaving the active duty after 14 years of service, she worked as a corporate executive and then founded a company focused on government business developing and growing on an average of 45% year over year for the first five years. Erica then sold the company in 2014 and founded 2020 Vet, which is she, what she now runs. That's unbelievable numbers in any capacity at any time, 45% year over year over five years. That's phenomenal, Erica. Um, in addition to, you're quite welcome. I mean, you're the one that's doing this crazy. She has continued through the nation as a major in the U.S. Army Reserve under the Joint Chief and found and staff working on women, peace, and security initiatives as the only NATO, let me repeat that, the only NATO certified gender advisor working at the political and strategic levels. She was commissioned representing more than 650,000 women in Florida, is, is on the board of directors for Women Impacting Public Policy, hence we met, and former board member of an independent K-8 school in Half Moon, Half Moon Bay. I've been there, beautiful place you live, and the past president uh, for the U.S. Veterans Business Alliance, the longest running national veterans organization focused on veterans and entrepreneurship. She is also the co-founder of Zulu Time, which is a veteran transition center focused on community integration, ultimately providing the veteran a livelihood and sense of purpose. That's so important. Erica has received numerous awards to include being included being named as woman with a leadership background and ability to change world by Oprah and the White House Project. What year was that with Oprah? Do you remember? Oh, such questions. Well, it must have been around... I'd say 2008, somewhere right around when I was getting my master's degree. How cool is that? That was awesome. And the 40 and 40 doing good things in business and the community by the Jacksonville, Florida Business Journal, a 2015 Women of Influence by the Silicon Valley Business Journal, the 2016 National SROTC Cadet Instructor of the Year, and 2016 nominated change maker by the White House Summit on the United State of Women. That's interesting. What is that? Summit on the United national, State of Women. Sure, it's a national organization that really focuses on empowering women at all levels um, and sort of tackling the underrepresentation that exists in everything from judicial to business to um, you know law enforcement, you name it. So uh, they have segments that are regional they go around the, the country and they inspire and motivate and and teach the the next generation um to basically participate in in the process of uh you know making sure that um there's more women at the table i love it i love it. see i learned something just in the last two minutes and the 2017 small business innovation award by at&t she also has her BS in communications from the University of Hawaii, uh, sad place, sorry, an executive MBA from Florida National University, an EMBA program in internships in India and China. Okay, so welcome, Erica. But before we even begin, how many countries have you been to? I don't know, Desiree, and, and the, the attention to detail. I'm happy to report that there's two more NATO uh, WPS gender certified personnel at the the strategic and the policy level in the Pentagon. So, um, you know, our numbers are growing and that's the intent to continue to get more gender advisors throughout the force, um, which implements a gender perspective, you know, throughout all the training and operations and policy. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not the only one anymore, which is fantastic. Uh, that's, you've been doing this is absolutely fantastic. But on top of that, I mean, you have traveled to so many different countries. And so to know that from the intimate level that you know, is unbelievable. So I'm so happy that you got additional help. But at the same time, uh, you know, the whole focus is I want to put in is how many countries you've been to, because to know what you're doing on a global scale, to understand the, the dynamics of where you've been is so powerful. So before we get in again, welcome. And I'm so honored to have you on the call um, and the depth that you've prepared um, for everyone listening of all the podcasts I've ever done for Know the Rules of the Game. This is the most intense uh, literature that I have been given to you to go through it. So I am so honored to have that. But before we get into it, be asking the questions, give us some of your highlights of some of the first that you've done while you've been in the service. Well, I think you hit on some of them. And, and you know, I do want to start by saying veterans are very uncomfortable talking about themselves and even listening to our bios. It's like, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, to start off with that. 
but over time, I recognize that, you know, we do need to tell our stories uh, and people do need to know what value that we, you know, bring to um, society. So um, in the spirit of that, uh, I've never done things, you know, just to be the first to do something. It was because I was passionate about it or something looked interesting to me and it just happened to be um, that there, you know, wasn't anybody before me. Um, having gotten a little bit older and wiser, I mean, clearly I'm standing on giants of many women before me and that has paved the way to allow me to have these opportunities. And, and now, um, you know, I am giving back to the next generation uh, and they're standing on our shoulders. So um, the sad thing is, is we're in 2020 and I still see articles all the time about um, firsts, first in the military, first in corporate environment, you know, you name it, um, you know, we should be further along, but, you know, we've got room to go. So I will start just very quickly. Um, you know, you hit on some things, but uh, I grew up with uh, a very adventurous family and I was the youngest uh, female to climb Mount Whitney. I was nine years old and that was the tallest mountain in the continental U.S. So I always believed that, you know, I could conquer pretty much anything and, and nothing was off limits. Um, so, uh, yeah, I went in as a basically went to college after high school, bored out of my mind and decided to um, join the Army's military police. And uh, it, it was fantastic. You know, I didn't feel any kind of uh, gender bias. We were actually very, I think, valued because there was a lot of women that had to search women and women pick up on nonverbal cues. Um, and mm -hmm. then after about three and a half years of being in Europe, then I decided, okay, I'm going to uh, get a scholarship and then go to um, become an officer. And that's when I was at University of Hawaii. And this was back in 2006, 2007. Um, I was the first female cadet commander of the um, of the school for basically the entire year. Um, you know, and again, didn't know that it just was what it was. Uh, then when I came in as an aviator, I was going to fly the Apache and decided wow, this Calvary mission is opening. That's the coolest mission ever. And so I looked into it and they had just opened it up. So um, again, I was the first group of women to be allowed to go to training and, and fly the um, the basic combat skills to learn how to be a, a Calvary pilot, which um, was fantastic. Uh, you know, unofficially, I've got so many stories, but unofficially, uh, my first my first unit, you know, cavalry, it was a heavy division cavalry with a bunch of tanks and a bunch of aircraft on the DMZ in South Korea, uh, you know, which was a great first assignment because if you fly wrong, you're actually going to get shot out of the sky by the North Koreans. So you had to kind of uh, grow up pretty quick and, and um, lead well. So anyway, this is not a game. This is not, uh, this is not a electronic no, game. Okay. No, got it. <laughs> not, a, not a game. So, so then, uh, earning your spurs is a rite of passage and that's a good three days of, you know, calorie knowledge and sitting in front of your leadership and answering a bunch of questions and then going through a couple of days of all kinds of implementing certain cavalry skills uh, day and night and carrying a bunch of stuff. And, uh, you know, none of the armor guys, of course, wanted me in their, in their group. And um, turns out, you know, by the end of it, I was carrying their loads. So, you know, the whole gender thing of, oh my gosh, she's only 125 pounds went out the window pretty quick. So at the end, when I had earned my spurs, um, we had to go to an event, a ceremony, and at the time we only had skirts to wear in our formal army dress uniform. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to wear a skirt with my spurs to, you know, this party. This is ridiculous. So I went to a local Korean tailor, had some pants made, wore them, and my leadership just kind of looked at me and was like, all right, looking good, Lieutenant. So, uh, you know, we were, I think I was probably one of the first to unofficially wear pants with spurs, which is, you know, it's silly in retrospect, but again, I was not going to wear it with a skirt. Um, and again, it I was not, it, it's not silly. It was, it was a statement. It's strong. It's powerful. <laughs> it gives you the right. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Right. I earned it. All right. So anyway, great time. Uh, and then when I was a young captain, I got the chance to go to the advanced cavalry armor school. Um, and then, uh, you know, later on after I had done 11 years active duty, uh, you know, there was uh, first in terms of like sitting as board presidents and uh, participating in certain um, certain advocacy roles. And, you know, as you know, I'm a California commissioner for uh, California commission on women and girls. I was a commissioner in Florida. So, um, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed my journey and um, wouldn't have had it any other way. Do you notice how she talks as fast or faster than I do? Did you get that and how fast she enunciates <laughs> and gets it together and her passion and heart? Just everyone on the call. We got to get this going. 
Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no, you, it's an all-day work, you know. Erica, it's just, you know, easy, easy. I mean, what's the problem here? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so let's let's take a step back. Bottom line up front, BLUF. U.S. service personnel and military veterans continue to take their own lives at unprecedented rates. And so that was incredible, Eric. I'm still processing. If all of you are still processing, I'm still processing it for the umpteen time I've heard it. But this is incredible. This is, oh, my gosh. It is an epidemic. Despite the fact that there are over 45,000 nonprofits dedicated to veterans and their families, in addition to multiple billion-dollar-backed government programs, aimed at addressing servicemen and veteran issues. We have made little to no progress in combating this over the last decade. In fact, there was an article that just came out, I think that you just posted, Erica, where it was something like 800 some million dollars that um, had not gone to the proper funding and where it was supposed to go, so uh, inappropriate funding for um, not going to the veterans that were service disabled. Uh, we do not offer them insightful options as they leave the service besides corporate job placement. And when they leave the service and that transition, they were overwhelmed at help options. We have three years to catch them. And if we do not provide meaningful direction, this is the point we lose them. During transition, they don't know where to begin or even what they need at that point. They feel alone. They withdraw. They don't speak the language. That is until they find meaningful local resources, equipping them with necessary tools, peer-to-peer -to -peer mentoring, and a network that aims to provide them purpose. Since over half the veterans leaving the service do not return to the place they are from, think about that, do not return to the place they are from, 50%, local attainable resources are critical. Recent studies also show that more than 50% of post 9-11 veterans report not knowing where to go for help, despite the thousands of organizations in existence, over 45,000 we just heard. It is just too much. Tough love, coaching, and sense of belonging is what they are used to, and it takes other veterans to guide them through this process. Veterans test other veterans as is part of their ethos not to leave a fallen comrade behind. This approach will fast track them towards successful integration and save the lives of thousands of national treasures that can be valuable members of society. It is our duty to change the sovereign statistics. According to the 2018 Blue Star Families Military Family Lifestyle Survey, 82% of military veteran families feel that the general public doesn't understand the sacrifices they made. In addition, our women veterans face additional challenges that have made their counterparts, their male counterparts do not. Meet our guest, Amy, sorry, Armor Veteran, Erica Courtney. And that's where my chorus is that, Erica, you are in a different worldly, in my opinion, place that you have been there, done it in the trenches, been on top, seen the light, protect the military from the warlords, and then from there come back and see what you've experienced you're coming back to bring into forward of how that impact is going to change on the numbers of the statistics that you can bring them to make sure that they have a voice and they have a purpose to get from falling into getting to where it's too, it's very hard to get them to retrieve them back. Right. Sure. So with that being said, we have veterans account. We lose 22 veterans a day account for 22% of all suicides completed in the United States. We lose a veteran every 65 minutes due to suicide, and we lose 6,000 veterans a year to suicide. If you think about those numbers, 22, 65, 6,000, we cannot put a number on it. We have to put a person and a face to each one of those people. And they have served and have given everything. So we all can be here. If you think of the times we're going through right now. so. Let's go through and talk about the very first question that we want to bring to the table about what is an invisible veteran? Sure, an invisible veteran is a woman who served in the military. And there's a very poignant poem. It was written by Sarge uh, Litticum. And if you just bear with me, just to kind of start where we're going with this, she writes, you can tell her by the twinkle in her eye. At parades when the flag marches by, she served our country and she served it very well. 
Some have even served a tour or two in hell. She suffered hardship and never ceased to care. It gave us strength just to know that she was there. She was a leader. You could tell by the rank she wore, but she became the invisible veteran after the war. She can march, she can fly, and she can sail. She proved that bravery isn't exclusive exclusive of the male. She did every job she was asked and more, but she became the invisible veteran after the war. Now it's finally time to right a wrong, honor our sister veteran, hear her song. It's very clear that she's a patriot to the core. Don't let her be the invisible veteran anymore. It's very heavy. If you think about how many times someone walked up to someone, a husband and wife, and say, thank you for your service, or acknowledge, think of the guy and the girl is the one who's been the service, and the portrayal of what they, you know, wear or the clothes that you buy. You've, I've heard you talk many, many times about this, just being around you and, and you're bringing things to the table when you see things. You're that, you're the female, you're the veteran. How can you paraphrase it in your own words that this is something that, that you've experienced or, you know, you're both, you're, both you and your husband are both have served in the military. You both were helicopter pilots, um, both gone to several same countries. How does that have different now that you've both been out for a while? Well, I mean, I could, I definitely want to talk about, you know, sort of these unconscious biases. Uh, but, you know, to summarize a little bit of my own experience, uh, when I had got out, I mean, it got easier for me as I gained rank and my reputation preceded me and, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad. Uh, you know, it's always harder for the, the first. Um, and then once people realize that you can do the job and you can do it well, it's it's really not a big deal and it's not even talked about much. Um, so when I got out, you know, I was feeling good. I, you know, I had 11 years active duty. I had two babies and I was like, wow, all of a sudden I'm not invincible anymore and decided to, um, to leave. And it was a tough decision, but, you know, it was, I just wanted to make sure that I was there for my kids. And at the time, you know, the maternity uh, policies were not nearly what they are today. I mean, I had literally like one week I had my baby and I was back pushing people out to Iraq and bringing them home from Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, there just was no, there's no time. Um, so, you know, it wasn't conducive to, uh, you know, to, to motherhood. So uh, my mouth is I, dropping. Sorry. <laughs> well, and, and again, you know, we've, we've come a long way, but you know, uh, there's still room to to kind of grow. But I realized really quickly when I had got out, I was intermingling with a lot of the the guys that, you know, I had served with or even some of the helicopter pilots that my husband, um, he was he switched to the Coast Guard um, that served with. And, you know, I always was I was basically one of the guys I knew how to speak, you know, military. And, you know, we just kind of the the, the jokes that we kind of throw at each other and, you know, the outside world looks and goes, oh my gosh, that would be like a terrible thing to say. And, you know, it's just the banter that kind of keeps us going. And I noticed from the side, there was a lot of spouses just giving me the evil eye. And it was my first taste of, wow, I'm not a service person anymore. I am a spouse. I am, you know, I am like, whatever is considered, uh, you know, a normal female. Therefore, you know, my brashness and humor and kind of banter back and forth with the, with the guys was seen as um, threatening or they just didn't understand it. Um, so I kind of had to take a step back and reflect and say, what is this new reality I'm living in? And, you know, I started working in a corporate environment and, you know, like many veterans, I was like, oh my gosh, why are they whining that the coffee's not too hot? Or, you know, you know just, just things that like we just don't do in the service. You just go, right? And, and if you whine, mm-hmm. it's kind of joking me because nobody wants, wants that around. Um, and so I wasn't a great fit for corporate America. You know, I worked hard and, you know, I was very mission driven, but, you know, lacked that sort of community and integrity and everybody was sort of working for the almighty dollar and not sharing information. And, you know, you just don't do that. Like you cannot wonder what the guy to your left and right is doing. You got to know that they're doing their job and, you know, you're all working as a team and, you know, there's not greed involved. So, 
you know, I then started looking, you know, for jobs and I recognized very early that if there was a man interviewing and I was interviewing him both veterans nine times out of 10, he would be seen as the warrior and I would not, even though I was more in a combat arms role, you know, than him. Um, mm-hmm. And so I started looking into statistics and, and it took me many years to kind of figure out that, you know, why do women, you know, we'll get into this suffer from higher rates of depression and, you know, PTSD and suicides over our male veteran counterparts. Like, what is that? And I had to reflect and say, well, I think that women have to, to learn how to be feminine in a society that expects you to be a certain way. And when you come out, you know, you, you've led men, you've, you know, you've been in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars and equipment and, you know, the amount of responsibility you have at such a young age is, is something you don't see on the outside. So you're, you come out and you're direct. And you, you know, you're very mission focused and you have integrity and you're all about teamwork and, and women don't know how to deal with it. Honestly, women were some of the hardest critics and men are also uh, don't understand that style. So it takes a while for veterans, you know, especially female veterans to figure out how to be warmer, I guess, and how to be more patient and not so direct. So you're, you know, you can get what you need accomplished in a way that doesn't, you know, threaten people. Um, You just don't have time for that in the military. So, you know, again, that extra element of trying to fit into a society that, you know, you had to sort of change and become one way in the military where you were, you know, you couldn't give off signals. You had to be very direct. You had to, you know, be um, a certain kind of way and be tough and never let them see you sweat, never let them see you cry. You better bite your tongue until it almost bleeds before you let that happen. You almost had to be tougher. And so when you come out, people don't know how to deal with that. You use the word soft, that you had to soften yourself. And many times we've spoken about the impact. And I really believe that in corporate America, you know, you have the, the going gets tough, you know, old saying, and I can see where in corporate America that they would feel, as you say, the almighty dollar threatened because you're trying to be a team, but that was survival um, in the military where you come out in corporate America, the survival is of money versus the survival of, of team. And um, even though you've been on a contract in a different platform, but here you're talking about the softening skills of the women of being not to be, you know, that, you know, the inner core of that burning. And I could just imagine not only that transition for you, but the transition to go into a corporate board and expect to not to be seen or heard. And you're just sitting there and saying, no, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to utilize the seat. I have the platform. I have the voice. I have the stage. I have the speaker. I have the mic. Right. Um, and the intensity that would go with it is, and it's something that I, I, you've been out now for a few years. Has it changed? Has it softened for you to soften? Or is it something that you still have to keep reminding as, as being in it for 11 years and still going back to as a reservist to go back in the, the whole of the Pentagon? Yeah. Yeah. So I had 11 years, you know, plus like three years as a cadet. So, I mean, my whole adulthood was, was military. Uh, and, you know, again, it took me many years to kind of figure out uh, what some of the things that I had to kind of overcome. I had to bridge that military cultural divide. I had to understand where they're coming from. And I, as a veteran, have the onus, and I, I tell this to veterans all the time, is we have to learn the language of, of corporate or entrepreneurship or whatever it may be as well. Because, you know, what happens is veterans are sort of portraying, they're, they're, working towards something in a certain way and they don't understand why non-veterans are perceiving them as you know one way and so you get this animosity and this misunderstanding but it sure helps when someone on the other side of you know a a corporation or whatever it may be sort of understands their skill set and their capabilities and how they approach things and then that veteran also understands how to say, hey, this is what I did and this is how it translates to what I can do in a language that they really can understand. So it's this really interesting communication barrier. And, and I am this very unique person because I completely got out and went through my transition process. And, 
you know, started uh, a couple businesses and, you know, went down my journey. And then in 2013, after a seven year break in service, if you would have told me I would have put a uniform on again, I would have thought you're crazy. But um, they had just lifted the law for women to serve in all combat operations roles. And having been there, done that, you know, unofficially, um, like many women before me, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity to kind of talk straight to the next generation of leaders coming up. So I joined the reserves and I started teaching at um, UC Santa Clara and Stanford and San Jose. Uh, and, you know, I approached it in a way that was more like, let's talk about what women, how their brains work and how men's brains work. And it's not all about the physical and, you know, let's respect each other as individuals and how much more powerful can we be with this, uh, you know, understanding and diversity that we bring to, you know, the organization as a whole. So I really enjoyed it. And, you know, if I'm at the point in my life that if I'm enjoying something and I can give back, then great, sign me up. And then next thing I know, I was uh, sucked up to some battalion staff and brought in instructors basically mm -hmm. everywhere west of the Mississippi. Um, and then I got the opportunity. My old boss said, you should go to the joint staff at the Pentagon and, you know, take some of the, the business skills and, you know, advocacy skills that you have had. And, you know, try to make a difference up there. And, uh, you know, for a good year, I was um, trying to get on and I ended up uh, getting a position at Global Policy and Partnerships. And then it sort of worked into uh, going to Sweden and becoming a um, certified what we call gender advisor. And my role uh, at the time was to advise different joint staff and combat commands and work with other gender advisors mm -hmm. in these areas on how to implement a gender perspective in all of our training policy planning. And that doesn't mean, you know, like we need women for the sake of women. It's like, no, we need to look at these populations differently and how our non uh, traditional fighting forces um, are utilizing human capital through the use of child soldiers and rape and ethnic cleansing to fuel and fund the violent extremist organizations. So um, I had a hand in helping, um, you know, the group of, of professionals and writing policy uh, for the Department of Defense. And now I'm sort of kind of working within the peacekeeping and some other areas. So, you know, I, I feel honored to be able to be in a position to provide insight to my military counterparts now too because i bring that civilian take so i'm this interesting bridge that can speak both languages and when i see the military trying to tackle how we deal with transitioning veterans i mean i'll be the first to call it out and say we're failing we're failing our veterans you're teaching them how to dress you're teaching them how to write a resume and they have no idea what this language is and we got to teach them how to tell their story we got to teach them to be confident we got to tell them this is what the road is going to look like for the next three years but when you come out of it how successful can you be as a citizen so you have hit on so many points the thing that i take away from this obviously from the, the women's peace security act but the the other piece is that it's almost as if you have dual languages being spoken here. You have the you have the veteran language of understanding of the truism of what the transitional impact is, being in combat, being in so many different countries of different cultures that you experience, and how you the camaraderie of saving lives and being the rescue and the uh, of team meaning life existence, and then the other aspect is the female portion of it of how to address the being the tough and the hard and and and, and having the fight and don't let them see you sweat to coming out and being soft but as you, you hear all the dni pieces that how well you have to transition this so the men can understand what the woman's thinking and when the vice versa is that you got to teach the the women to understand what the men are thinking you're doing the same thing in from the veterans point of view and then from the female veterans point of view so you're doing a demo whammy of if you think about it from a completely different cultural um as of a different language and a different impact right um and a high high intensity so um hence you know being been there done that as, as you keep saying i mean it's powerful so um you can tell i just go on um so if we play that into our second question, which we've touched a fair amount on it, but if you were to coin it up, what, why do you think that um, female veterans are invisible and what issues are unique to female veterans that you believe that is going to, you, you talk about some statistics here 
um, talk a little bit about that, about the Women's Action Network survey and how that plays into uh, the identification we talked a little bit, but let's, let's finish that off before we go into our third question. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's, it's images that we see and what we grow up with in our society. When you look at a soldier in a way that Hollywood portrays a soldier, it's the big muscle guy who's kicking down the doors and rolling in the dirt. And, you know, these are the, the big burly guys, um, you know, and we need those guys, you know, absolutely. I, we need those guys carrying 200 pounds on their back that, you know, are smart guys and can interact with communities. But um, you know, in the Army and the Marines especially, it is really about the physical. Uh, it's always been about the physical. So I always had to prove myself physically. I was a great runner, which really helped me out. And I was very strong mentally. So you throw something on my back and I, I wouldn't complain. Um, if you can impress them physically in these, you know, ground types of units, um, then they'll give you a chance to move on. But today, you know, the military is changing. And in order to remain competitive as a force, and this is where my reserve piece kind of comes in, I mean, we've got all this uncertainty going around the world. We call it a great global power competition, and we need thinkers right now. We need strategists. We need intelligence, and we need communicators. We need collaborators with partner nations and technology experts, and a lot of these roles are extremely well-suited for women um, you know, because having a diverse force makes us a better force. Having a diverse workplace makes us a better workplace. Uh, you know, this isn't rocket scientists. And I go back to the cultural divide is very real, um, you know, understanding languages and what being feminine means and overcoming and understanding what traditional expectations are um, and how to navigate that. Because you don't figure that out, it's going to lead to some type of conflict. And, you know, there was a 2015 study on how female veterans cope with transition. And one of the participants basically said, hey, when I first got out of the military, I had a hard time with women, with civilian women, and they didn't understand why I look so militant. You know, why do you walk straight up and why do you walk so directly and, you know, operating in that male-dominating environment, um, you know, doing traditionally male activities uh, to include combat um, are so, so different than what a lot of civilian women have had to, to encounter. Not that female mm -hmm. veterans are better in any way. It's just experience and, you know, pushing through things and knowing that each time you think you can't do something and this goes for male veterans as well and you do it. And then the next time you think you can't do something and you do it before you know it, I mean, you've got confidence. I mean, I honestly feel like right. there's not much I can't do. Um, it's because I have been pushed and I have been tested and, you know, that makes us a little bit different. You know, it's not that they're cocky. It's just, you kind of believe in your, your abilities. So what I will say is that, you know, women are often denied recognition for their military accomplishments. Um, there's been surveys out there that suggest that 74% of the respondents said that the general public, public doesn't recognize their service. Um, I've got friends all the time that will park in a, hey, this parking space is for a veteran and they get yelled at or you know, if you look out there in terms of what's available for female veterans, it's very male related. You know, it's like, oh, I'm a male, I'm a veteran. And, you know, when you see things made mm -hmm. for females, it generally relates to your spouse or your military brat, but not associating with you in the service. And we, we kind of need to um, pay attention to this because we have a ton of women who are not self-identifying as a veteran. Uh, and that's a problem. And that is why I tell my story and I work with other women veterans to tell their story because they need to understand that they wore a uniform and they are a veteran and they served proudly and they should be um, breaking those stereotypes that we don't all need to be, you know, 200 pound muscle guys to, to, to look like a veteran. Um, so, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, the, the biases that women face, um, it does really lead to higher rates of mental and physical health issues over our male counterparts. It's, I hear a clothing line in one aspect that's coming out soon. I hear storytelling on fabric. And the second thing I hear is, is that that impact for the transitional um, center is really going to focus on, on dealing with um, the issues of twofold. One, the male transition and the female transition will be very different based on, yeah. on, on that. Um, three. So thank you very much for that. I mean, just, you can hear the ebbs and flows of your body speaking through the call. It's amazing, Erica. When you say you're, I, I'm sorry, being real, 
when when you say they're they are suffering more, what do you mean in terms of numbers? Sure. So you know, I'm sure some of the people on here are going to be very data driven. So compared to men. Uh, women veterans are much more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health disorder, about 31% versus 20. Um, we're much more significantly likely to have a diagnosis of depression, PTSD, anxiety, obesity, bipolars, uh, you name it, suicides. So having women veterans with these mental diagnoses, um, they have different health problems. And with the amount of women that are increasingly serving coming into the military and leaving the veteran, the VA and honestly normal hospitals aren't quite sure and they can't keep up with the demand because women's health issues are different than men uh, and they're suffering from, you know, STDs and UTIs and, you know, they're all their stuff just literally coming out of their body when you're talking about, you know, female parts, the pelvic, the genital mm -hmm. pin cushions, there's dysfunctions, reproductive health problems, and, you know, there's little information out there in studies, but what, what we can, common sense will tell you is that, you know, the military has always been one size fits all, and it's slowly changing. I mean, I would get the same dose as a, a huge muscle guy for shots. Um, I would wear the same equipment or the weight rested on my hips versus, you know, men have more back problems because it rests on their back. So because all of this weight is on our hips, it's causing a lot of, you know, problems with women um, you know, with UTIs and, and bladder problems. So I will right. say that the unemployment suicide rate, yeah, exactly. Um, epidemically high, uh, you know, if you look at mm. unemployment rates, we're at about 11% compared to 7% for normal women and younger women face about 35% unemployment rates. Um, they've generally got more wow. family to take care of, a harder time transitioning. They're more likely to be divorced. They're more likely to be taking care of their parents and their kids, um, which relates to civilian, you know, world as well. Um, and even if they were in combat arms, again, men are seen as the warriors. And, um, you know, when we're talking about buying land or buying houses or access to capital and entrepreneurship, I mean, we're 21% less likely to win government contracts. We're much less likely, you know, about 4% of us get VC loans as women. Um, you know, we're much higher to experience homelessness and poverty. I, you know, when you look at younger wow. women veterans, I mean, they're at a higher risk. They're about 12 times the rate of non-veteran women for homelessness and depression and PTSD. Um, so we only, we're, we're about 15% of the military, but, you know, we account for about 95% of um, reported sex crimes. And from about 2005 to 2015, uh, the amount of veterans using the VA healthcare center increased 46%. I mean, they just don't know how to deal with this and they're trying. Um, so, you know, I think women's wow. health in general, there's a lack of data, but in terms of women veterans, there's much less lack of data and a lot of um, research needs to uh, be done. But most of us women veterans can explain the why behind all of this mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and you know I always think that's that's the most important if you can kind of figure out why women are suffering certain problems and why they have higher rates of suicide and depression and uh, then we can really start holistically looking at how we are going to fix those problems which I could um, get wow. to in a second. Yeah well we could go on forever we're going to run out of time here yeah. real quick in this podcast. Um, yeah. It's the amazing thing is, is that every time we keep going down this path, the invisibleness of the female veterans gets exponentially higher. Um, it, it's like it's buried under the buried of the under the dirt, under the under the rug. Just it's not even it, it wasn't it didn't happen, you know, um, just look at your numbers are overwhelming. Now that you've outlined the uniqueness of women over their male counterparts, can you tell me a little about your journey as a female veteran as it relates? You've talked about some of it of going through college and going through all that stuff. So has there anything that you have experienced during that time, because we've heard a little bit at the beginning, that you believe that was a saving grace or was it a constitute of all the different things you went through that keeps you alive and, and going? Because I, I know that, you know, we were at an event and I made a comment because Every time you posed, your hands were clenched and you're in this perfect position. 
even if there were other, you know, everyone in their in the military still in their uniforms, you still have this perfect pose. And yet the others were a little bit relaxed. And you made a comment to me. Remember that? Tell me the comment. Maybe it's lots of comments, Desiree. <laughs> you told me the comment about that. That's how you're supposed to pose. Is that in the military you have to be proud and strong and just be there and and be in the moment. Of course, you have to. Have, you could, we call it having presence, right? We just have to have presence. Yeah. But you, you yeah. but to have that. 20 years and the time he left and coming back and and still have that integrity and the intensity i could see it in your face i could see it in your hands i could see it all the way through your entire body it was it was incredible so i'm just saying that you keep that poise of being non-invisible and making sure that through your amplification of your voice your body and your and your your spirit you are making sure that that, that veteran is not invisible especially the female veteran um, well, yeah, and, and you know, I just want to jump back to numbers just very quickly. I mean, when you look at male to female veterans, uh, men are about twice the rate to commit suicide as the male population, and females are at about six times the rate. And when you look at PTSD, women are two to three times higher over our male counterparts, and we're at about 10% homelessness versus 5% male. So the numbers are very real. Okay. Um, yeah. But we so can get to the positive. Is, like, you know, we can get to what we're doing. And exactly. We can get to you know what works. Number five. Yeah. Exactly. Since we got only a little bit left here, let's let's get to the fun <laughs> stuff. Now that we're aware of all these issues, what really works, and how can we get past, as you call it, the statistical cliff? What do veterans really need from their firsthand experience as a veteran and advocate? Yeah, I mean, billions of dollars every year continue to flow to mental health professionals. We call them white coats, federal programs, research. You know, you look at uh, Congress and you look at Pentagon and you look at everybody trying to tackle this and they still can't figure out why is this happening. They keep throwing money at it. And it's very simple. We are not holistically looking at our veterans. There's too much help out there. It's overwhelming. And nobody is really looking out for that whole picture of a veteran. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if we do not, as you said, catch them within the first three years and we are not pointing them in the right direction and we're not being honest with them on, hey, the road is going to be bumpy. This is what it looks like. This is what the numbers say. It's going to kind of suck. And you know what? You're going to get a job and half of you are going to quit by your first year. And by year two, you're talking three quarters are going to get quit. And that's the number one stressor. You don't have a job. That's a problem. Not only have not having a job is a problem, but then you get into community and relationships. So what can we do that will work? And I always go back to peer to peer. I've been at this advocacy thing a while now, probably a decade, you know, over my business travels, I always sat next to veterans. I don't know what the deal was, but the universe kept pointing me to this saying, wake up, wake up, pay attention, pay attention and get involved. And these guys would just Uh pour their stories out. And I'm like, why do these strangers tell me all of this stuff they never told their wives and their families and I quickly realized that being having that vet once they got past my exterior and they're like oh my gosh you were in the fight you're in the military they trusted me and it was also something really interesting I thought maybe because I'm a woman and it's a little less threatening that they could feel vulnerable you know there was something there right and so over the years I was just like oh my gosh what is why and so then I started digging into numbers I slowly started getting involved in groups and then I recognized that entrepreneurship was a great way to kind of point veterans in the right direction since 40 percent of us are going into business versus like 10 percent in the Vietnam era and through that I've met thousands of veterans and heard thousands of stories and um, you know I've been inspired and I and you know I hopefully you know, myself and, and the people that I've worked with have had a hand in being straight talk with them and say, this is great. Let's talk to war stories where you're at, but where do you need to be and how do we get you there? So we've sort of narrowed it down to four areas. They need connection and real relationships in a community that they're unfamiliar with. They need shelter. Mm-hmm. They need rent, right. house, something. They need some kind of right. career development. And they need to take care of their mental, physical, and spiritual health. And that's the triage piece. So, you know, and then what three areas can we address to cover those? And that's, again, veterans are not taught all this stuff while they serve. But when they get out, they should be taught how to, you know, your personal piece, how to manage your money, how to get a home, you know, what kind of benefits are out there. 
And, you know, professionally, are you looking at education or job training or entrepreneurship and then the rehabilitation piece? How can we look at the suicide, PTSD, depression? What alternatives are out there besides white coats? What's in the local area that can really, you know, they can touch and feel and we can vet them to make sure that they're not just trying to make a buck off our veterans, but they're doing good things. And then once mm-hmm. we educate them and get them involved, we're way more likely to participate in our communities and volunteer. We make our communities safer. We're much more likely to vote. We're much more likely to run and win for office. We're much more likely to do well, you know, two times more likely to succeed in businesses, non-veteran owned business owners. We're much more likely to increase ROI within corporations. So we are national treasures, but we have to get them through that three years. And if we can, and we can speak to the commercial world, and the veteran community on how to understand each other and each other's value. And again, what the road looks like and what it can look like, the success stories on the back end, then we are really addressing it. But if we keep throwing billions at the wrong things and we keep opening up, you know, these veteran community organizations that tackle mm-hmm. one little piece of this and not the holistic picture, we're going to continue. Silo. Yep. Well, you know, you, you talk about some incredible words. So thank you for your, your solutions. It really is. You talk about straight talk, which I absolutely love. You talk about the military speak. You talk about the national treasure. And you also talk about the fact that is, is that, you know, the team player versus the eye in corporate America. So with those key points, you know, it's so powerful to have knowing exactly where you stand in the straight talk, understanding the rules, understanding the, 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 feelings, the intensity, the, the powerful message that's being sent and the military speak of getting to triggering to get them to relax. You know, it's like having, you know, they always say that pets are an incredible journey to help. You know, you can't get all the drugs in the world, can't get to someone, but here a dog comes up and looks someone or does something. And it's a difference of life or death just because that one moment, because they can relax them and calm them down. And, and I believe that relates to the military speak. You really can get to the core, get what is going to get them to engage, get that person to understand. Um, and maybe it takes a couple of different ways of saying it, but that military speak is so powerful. And as you said, the national treasure, when we spoke before about how um, the number one thing is, is that they go into construction, how you can get them to go through that three-year cycle to really turn up that dial to be productive and get back to them. And then they can be the best, as you said, the national treasure. This is incredible. So one of the things that I would like to um, also address is that, you know, um, I know from the military statistics, we were talking about they're not educated before they get out as far as the programs and platforms they have that they have resources for when the veterans get out, is, is that 80% of all the veterans who have um, own a home when they get out, but only 13% of them use their VA um, loans. How can we address that something so very valuable, as you talked about, one of the four most key components is having a roof over the head. What's that look like and get into home ownership? So what do you think would be so valuable to help there? I think we just need to educate realtors. We need to educate lenders uh, because the veteran starts going down the path of trying to potentially get a VA loan and the bureaucracy. I know it sounds easy, but it's not. And remember, veterans are taught how to write a check and keep the home front, you know, sort of just surviving while you're deployed. Um, they're not really taught to invest because every money, every month you have money coming out of your check going to investment. You don't have to think about it. So when you get out, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I have to learn how to plan for retirement, to invest, to buy a home. And nothing is ever easy. All the benefits that veterans have, you know, they look great on paper, but anybody who's been through the process, I've been through the process, it takes a lot of time. Uh, you know, recently the VA just said that there's no cap anymore on VA loans. And I guarantee you my veteran community doesn't know that because before you can only get a VA loan up to a certain point and then you had to pay the difference of your deposit and some other things. So, you know, it's just educating people about these are resources that veterans have available to them. And here's how you can kind of help them through this process. Uh, because do not assume that the veteran understands because when they get out, it's very much how to prepare for corporate America instead of a ton of other things that they could be well suited for. So if I'm hearing you correctly, 
we got to educate everyone before they get out of the service, especially the females, because they're the ones who are making 91% of all the buying purchases just as a whole, not as veteran themselves. You have the women outliving the men. You also have the women that have, I believe that it would really help if they had a core, if they had a core sanctuary. You talked about the, um, the mental health issues that they're being faced with the female veterans. If you gave them a place to do their thing, to decorate, to be involved, to be creative, because as you talk about the camaraderie and the service and, and being able to help each other and be protective, you know, you get into an environment that you, you have your home and you protect your, your surroundings. Um, I think it'll really be a positive thing. So educating the veterans before they get out of service, but they have the right, they have the opportunities, they have the resources for the loans, access to capital, not only for home, but for a business. And then also, what are those parameters to get done? And you touched on something very interesting that really resonated when you just talked is, is that when you're in the service, everything's automatically paid for you or withdrawn for you and, and, and it's automated and they're out there serving the country and, and doing the gig. So when they get back, they now have options. What do they do? How do they do? Where do they invest? And how they, you know, things. So they're not, they've been not practicing that skill set, maybe not exposed to that skill set. So it's a double whammy because they're looked at like, hey, you've been in the military, you've been getting a check. What do you mean you don't understand how to get that right? Um, very interesting. Absolutely. I and think- they're accountable. So in the military, if you're a young soldier and you're not paying your bills and the bill collector calls the commander, that soldier is going to suffer and that soldier is going to feel it. So, you know, you get on the outside, there's no one holding their hand. They got to like figure this stuff out, just basic banking, you know, basic loan stuff. So a lot of them go to those shanty, you know, day loan places and get charged crazy interest rates or credit cards. And then they go into debt and then that just spirals out of control in terms of depression. And, you know, then the other, the onslaught of the statistical cliff comes on. So we, we definitely need to do a better job. And we also have to, again, educate the commercial market that when you're dealing with a veteran, you know, here's some tools and that you can use uh, to make sure that you're setting that person up for success. Wow. That's exactly um, the core of putting this together to making sure that, you know, they have so much transitioning from the veteran capacity to the civilian how their workflow, their expectations of the civilian life, the integration back to family, if, if they're going back home, 50% of them not going back to where they entered from or going back to family. Um, it's almost like you a boot camp to exit, like the boot camp going in. Um, they have, really touches the military has good. things like soldiers for life and each branch has their own and some are better than others. Uh, and I stay pretty abreast as to what are they teaching you? And, uh, you know, again, we need to be doing a much better job there because generally these programs are run by people who don't speak the language, have never had to live both worlds and both worlds and the veterans are, are you know, the, they're still serving. A lot of them are listening to people that, you know, it's not peer to peer. They don't trust them. These people don't know where they've come from. So, you know, you really have to think about who you put in front and what their experiences are and really develop a program that is meaningful and honest. We're not being honest with what the road is going to look like. And they think something is wrong with them because they cannot connect and they get isolated. We have to tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we have to prepare them like we would for any battle. You know, that is what this is. Mm. This is a war to save our veterans and we are not winning. With that note, how do we help? How can we help your mission on the female veterans and veterans as a whole to be not invisible and everyone do their part? Give us well, three first, sure. examples. Go ahead. Well, first thing is any any veteran that's listening to this male or female, uh, you know, just men be aware that women have some different kinds of issues. And when you invite them to veteran events, they may not want to be hanging out at the frat party scene, you know, with cheerleaders and pom-poms everywhere, you know, uh, you know, they wonder why they can't get women veterans to show up to a lot of, you know, veteran events. And, uh, you know, it's because women veterans generally want to hang out with women veterans. 
Um, so think about that. And women veterans need to tell their story. They, they had confidence once. They, you know, they had that presence. And I see them get out and they, their posture is terrible and they lack, they're lacking confidence. And I'm like, where is that woman that led 120 guys? Where is she? What did you do? Mm. Bring that to mm -hmm. your normal world and tell your story. You know, get past the cultural divide of, you know, if they don't tell their stories and they don't make themselves interesting, there's 10 people behind them that are going to sound interesting to get that job or get that customer. So, you know, that's right. something they have to overcome pretty quick. And that's where other veterans talking to veterans on like, hey, let's do, let's talk about how, what that means in normal speak. Um, and, you know, there has to be more community centered approaches. And that's why, you know, we've started the, the concept of ZULU time where it is a community-based approach, not a grandfather's DFW dark walls. It's a tech center. It's community resources. It's, you know, a, a comfortable place that veterans can talk to veterans in their community. And you've got trained veteran counselors there and assistance with, you know, leaders in that community that you can literally walk to. Um, because people are tired of seeing all the resources when they go online in DC, that's not helping anybody. Um, and, and then really it's just uh, things like this, the, giving veterans the platform to discuss, you know, the reality of, you know, again, the good, the bad and, and the ugly. And, and I appreciate that. And, you know, it's not easy for me to tell my story. And like I said, it's, it, it never has been. Uh, it, this isn't about me. It's about my brothers and it's about my sisters. And, and I really appreciate um, people just educating people about, you know, what this transition looks like. You know, there's so much more we could go on and on and on. And it, this is incredible, Erica. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I mean, we ran the six part, we ran a six part series on Erica's biography from being in the service that she took the time to write in the detail that you just heard and with all the pictures and running and impact of where, when, how, what, what it felt like to be there and to just integrate with society inside, outside, and the, and the effects that had happened on a personal level as, a, as the, you know, her, her, her group and then also of, of her transitions. And so to be able to have that journey these last couple of years and to see as if the continuation of it, um, of always having to see more and see more and see that the lines are, 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 are blurring and they're not being defined of, of, of growth going forward and, and going the opposite direction of, of good. Um, we, all of us who's listened to this call, has got to make sure that we share this information, get it out to the masses, because the most important thing, as Erica said, is that we got to get this information out so everyone can see and hear. Yes, we have the, you know, the the, um, the veterans for 22. You saw on social media have a really big impact, you know, as far as getting and doing the push-ups and this and this and this. But the idea is, is that that's number one. You get some awareness. But number two is what can you do, each of us individually, every day to understand those those consequences, what we can do to help out and reach out. So with that being said, Erica, I would love to uh, have you give who you, where they can get a hold of you, um, what platform based on what they would like to resonate to help out with the, the cause here for helping to get female veterans and all veterans to not be invisible, but especially female veterans from being invisible. Sure, I can give you, I'm, I'm a woman of many hats and many titles, not, you know, <laughs> the good and bad. So, <laughs> but I can give you uh, my 2020 vet email address. I think that's um, the easiest. So that would be E as an echo and then Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y at 2020vet.com. So, so that's eCourtney at 2020vet.com. Excellent. So that's one. And then we also have the Zulu time which will be hearing a lot more. That's at Zulu, just like it sounds, Z-U-L-U, time, T-I-M-E, now, N-O-W, dot com. That's up. Um, you can see what the triage looks like with the whole overview of that whole impact. If you'd like to be part of it, um, please, there's a uh, various different ways you can get a hold of us through that platform. 
I can get that information out there. So if you want to be part of that, that growth and impact and whatever service you would like to offer, uh, whether it's from, you know, um, transitional information, whether you want to be a participant, whether you want to um, provide um, uh, access and, and support services, we want to hear about that so we can form and grow it because as it continues day to day, there's just so much that has to be out there given because every, every transition and, and impact is, is there's so much that we need to get out because obviously as Erica, we heard that the numbers are dismal. They're going, they're going worse, not better. We've got to change that around. And it's just going to take all of us to get on board. Um, one act of kindness just goes so far. And one of the things that I heard from Colin Powell, I remember many years ago, he says, go up into someone and say, thank you for service. But most importantly, don't just thank, buy, walk up there and just pay for the coffee, go up there and do something that's, that's really changing someone and, and, and give that, you know, synergy, we're so silent. We don't talk to each other. We're so into ourselves. Go out there and just acknowledge, give someone a hug, be, be in the moment. Um, I think it's so far. And if you think about it from a female veterans, right, from not being invisible, going up ahead and a female veteran, um, how would you take that, Erica? If, I, if someone who didn't know you and heard your story and walked up and gave you a hug, put you on the spot. Yeah, I'd probably be a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but I, would, I would appreciate it. I mean, you know, anytime says a nice gesture. I mean, we all are kind of like, okay, thank you so much. But I think what it really boils down to is go past the thank you for your service and a hug. It's like really be patient and get to know that veteran. Uh, and veteran, really be patient and get to know that non-veteran because you're going to have more in common than you think. Uh, and you know, in this divisive time that we live in, it's so important for us to just have meaningful conversations and, uh, you know, go deeper as you do, Desiree, with, you know, with your guests and uh, try to figure out, again, the synergies and how we can work to make this, this planet a better place together. I think that's a perfect way to end our podcast. So for Know the Rules, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, Erica, for all that you do and continue to do um, for your mission and our friendship and our business and relationship and the growth that we're going to have. Um, I want to thank you again for being on the, our, our guest on the, on the podcast for Know the Rules of the Game for the Female Veteran. Again, for NAWRB, if you'd like to get involved, it's nawrb.com. You can reach us, um, info at nawrb.com. And we're really about the quality of life of the entrepreneur and the equality of information that we can give and the resources out. So taking a deep dive, again, this is Desiree Patnell. I'm your host of Know the Rules of the Game. So thank you all and stay tuned for next week at 8 a.m. Again, every Wednesday at 8 a.m. we have Know the Rules of the Game. So thank you all and have a beautiful day. And thank you again, Erica.